Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm Joe I. Ping, and on today's episode, I speak with Seven Sage tutor Brittany, who scored a 178 on her August 2021 exam. We discuss her LSAT journey, what tips she has for her students, and finally, we talk about a weakening question from the June 2007 prep test. Please enjoy. I have Seven Sage tutor Brittany here with me. Brittany, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's start by having you tell us something about yourself. Maybe where you're from, where did you go to school, or if you're still in school? Yeah, definitely. So I am from New Jersey. I'm actually from very north New Jersey, close to New York City. I went to college at the College of New Jersey, and I'm just finishing out my undergrad right now. I'm a double major in philosophy and English with a minor in business. And I think I answered all your questions. I'm not sure if you asked more. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> well, that's cool. Is your major in philosophy what led you to law school or the other way around, or maybe this you have nothing to do with each other? Yeah, so I originally began as a biology major at college. I really thought I wanted to be a doctor. I grew up as somebody that was always sick and I really wanted to help others that were sick. However, as I went through the science classes and was learning about plants and things like that, I realized that my interests did not lie within biology anymore. So I decided to kind of change my major. I've always been a very deep thinker and enjoyed like reasoning about the world. So I took on the philosophy major and I found that, you know, law, philosophy, and also like healthcare rights can all go together. So that kind of brought me to take the LSAT and hopefully become a health lawyer one day. Oh, very cool. And you're still in school? Yeah, this is my last semester. I'm finishing it out. I was going to graduate a year early. However, I didn't want to graduate online in the virtual environment. So oh, I just, right. yeah, so I did the normal four years. I was going to do only three, but it's okay. <laughs> You guys are back on campus. Yeah, we're back on campus, but some professors will still randomly hold a Zoom session instead. So, yeah. <laughs> well, from what I recall from college and eon ago, the last semester senior year was the best. Pretty much just hang out with your friends. Yeah, that's what everyone says. I'm going to have to make <laughs> it a little bit more fun. I feel like I've been boring lately. <laughs> From our, what I understand, you're, you're all done with your applications, right? You're just waiting to hear back? Yeah, I'm absolutely all done. I'm just waiting to hear back from one school, which I don't really think I'm going to be going to anyways. So now I just have to make the decision. Well, don't keep us in suspense. Where, <laughs> where are you going <laughs> to end up this fall? Yeah, so I've narrowed it down to four schools. I'm between Cornell, Duke, Columbia, and NYU. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's just going to come down to scholarships and attending the accepted students days and just seeing which school I feel like will best set me up for my future. Right, right. That's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And I suppose I'm not too surprised knowing what I know about your LSAT score. You, you have a 178 on file from August 2021? Yes. Right. And before that, you're, you just have two LSAT scores, official LSAT scores. The, the previous one was 170 from June of 21. Yes, that's exactly it. And I also see that you, you started with a diagnostic around like 160-ish? Yeah, I couldn't quite remember what I started with, but I was trying to go through my old papers. It was like a 159 or 160. Right. So let's talk about how you improved, you know, 18 point improvement, maybe 19, maybe 20 point improvement. That's that's pretty big. Yeah, definitely. 
maybe give us a lay of the land. Like when you started, was it mostly LG that was problematic or was it kind of evenly spread out or what, what was the situation? Yeah, definitely. So like I said, I'm a philosophy major. So I took a bunch of logic classes. I really understood logic pretty well. So unsurprisingly, logic games was actually my best section. The first time I took a diagnostic, I think I went minus one on logic games. So which Wait, really? To, yeah. And to some people, that's really, really <laughs> annoying. And I'm really sorry that I'm saying this. Oh but, my God. yeah. I don't even know how, how did that happen? I mean, they're so weird. Like, where would you have I, I encountered know. something like that before? I feel like I just like took a lot of games in my logic classes and I just naturally understood it, like deducing inferences and things like that. It just made sense to me. But also I took the June 2007 test as a diagnostic and I felt like the games weren't as bad on that test. So that minus one minus zero wasn't always super consistent. But besides that, I was very low on reading comprehension. I think it was like a minus 10 or something. And the same situation with logical reasoning. I've always been more of a math person than like a language person. Right. So I think that also kind of explains the discrepancy in my diagnostic score. For sure. But yeah, so from there, I knew that games weren't my issue. And I remember being crushed about it because everybody always says games are the easiest to improve. So oh, yeah. I was actually, I was like <laughs> oh, really yeah. upset about it. I'm like, guess this is a score for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I asked, I asked if logic games was your weakest, because typically someone with your profile, you know, starting with a diagnostic score in the six, low 60s, high 50s, low 60s, and improving up into the well into the 99th percentile in a short span of time. And I think you only study for about like five months or so. Yeah, yeah. Typically, it's because they already started out really high with RC and LR, and it was the games that needed improvement. So then the, yeah. the, the, the games <laughs> come quickly, which is why I assumed that that was the profile. But no, actually, it's completely the other way around. That's kind of nuts. It's reminding me of many, many years ago, I had this one student who was an undergrad at NYU. And I remember watching him do logic games. And I just couldn't figure out how he was doing it because he would just look at the games and he would start answering the questions without mapping anything out. And he would get oh them all gosh. right. And I asked him like, you know, what's going on? And he tells me, well, he just sees it. He sees it in his mind, like what the right answer is. And it was just crazy. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I will say I've always had a very good photographic memory. And I think one of the major things I tell people when I'm tutoring them is to always kind of memorize the rules as yes. well as your setup. I yes. think that's huge, huge for doing a logic game. I totally So agree. yeah, so for me, I think that I was able to figure out the game so quickly, maybe not in the best way, but because I always had the rules memorized in my head, I never had to refer back to anything. So I think that really helped me just having a very good memory. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, another kind of subtle thing about if you just like if you have in your working memory, the entire set of game pieces and rules, you don't have this paralyzing moment, or at least not as much because, you know, when something happens on the game, you just know like, well, that means, you know, I only have X number of pieces left, right, which are, you know, this, this and this. And I only have like three rules left, which are this, this and this. And then so you just immediately start, you know, algorithmically working through them versus if you don't have a really good working memory, like I, I often find this to be the case if I don't take a minute and like say to myself okay well 
here's the game, here's the board that I've completed, here's what's left. If I skip that step, sometimes I'll end up on a question and I'll have a place like maybe three game pieces and then I'll just, I just don't know what to do. Like I'm, I just feel like mm-hmm. a little stuck, right? And it's because I don't actually know what else is left. If you knew what else is left, <laughs> that kind of kicks you into action, so to speak. Definitely, definitely. I think also being more of an organized person helped me with the games too, because it's all about how you set up that piece of paper. I'm telling you, I will spend 20 minutes talking to people and being like, nope, set up your paper like this. I'm telling you, like, it's going to help you. Like you have to set it up in a way that's like visually appealing and your eyes are going to be drawn to what you need to know. So that's definitely a big thing. Absolutely. So, wow, this is uh, full, you're full of surprises, Britt, because I um, <laughs> I would have thought, you know, for, for a logic game, since you started out as clearly a LG savant, you wouldn't have too much to offer by way of relatable advice, but wrong, wrong again. <laughs> Everything you're saying is so good. It's it's super helpful. Even how'd you figure this stuff out? Like if you were already, you know, starting out so high with logic games. Yeah. So this is kind of weird. My brother actually studied for the LSAT and he used a different company. Needless to say, my brother is now now in medical school, no longer studying for the LSAT. <laughs> but he kind of was the one that talked me through it because he's he is the same person as me when it comes to like intellectual stuff and his games were perfect and mm-hmm. it was everything else that was bad. So the number one thing he said to me is said, this is all a mind game. And he said the same thing about the MCAT. You have to trick yourself into whatever you're reading is the best thing that you will ever read in your whole entire life. And you're going to use this information every day for the rest of your life. And for some reason, that kind of motivated me to study and learn more about what I was doing. And I found that because of where my weaknesses were. A lot of the things I had to do were outside of actually studying, like sitting down and reading an LSAT book. So I actually just started reading and I tell all my clients this, but I started reading this book called Big Ideas Simply Explained and they have all different topics. So they have like philosophy, they have science, they have art, they have all different things. And it just introduces you to little topics in small pieces. So I would read a section on that, like say I was learning about metaphysics in one of the little chapters, I would walk away and I would have to tell myself a summary of exactly what I just read because I thought reading for structure kind of would parallel what I was doing on the LSAT because I don't have the best attention span in the whole world. So I knew that that's kind of what I needed to focus on. And then for logical reasoning, it was kind of hard for me to figure out how to get better. I eventually ended up using Seven Sage in like my last month of studying and I felt like that helped a lot. But for me, it was mainly assumptions and understanding that the LSAT is testing me on the relationship between two things, between premises and conclusions. If you just like read it and you're like, oh, I can strengthen this by saying blah, blah, blah. Like you're not really focusing on the logic of it and the relationship. So I feel like that was something really big for me too. Yeah. Okay. So if I, if I understand what you're saying about the book that you were reading, it sounds like that helped you quite a bit with reading comprehension. Definitely. Both in terms of introducing you to the kinds of subjects RC covers, which is wide right? RC covers all sorts of subjects. So having like a shallow understanding of a wide ranging with a wide ranging subject is very helpful. So that's what the book kind of introduced you to substantively. But also the way that you utilize the book, the way that you read the book was also helping you because you would not just read the book, you'd read the book and then walk away and try to do what in RC we call low res summaries, right? Structural summaries of what you just read. So people often say that it's helpful to read outside material to prep for RC. 
I, I think a really important caveat on that is how you read that outside material is super important. Like if you just read it and you're not flipping on that RC switch as you read it, and by that I mean trying to extract out the structure from it, right? Forcing yourself to do the low res. I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's not helpful, but I was, I was certain to say you're still leaving a lot on the table. There's still a lot more you could be doing. Yeah, definitely. That sounds fantastic. And for LR, I think the point you made about the relationship is super important because so many questions are, so many wrong answer choices are precisely baits. They're baits in the frame of like, uh, you know, I told you this argument in the stimulus, but forget about the premises. Just look at the conclusion. And here's another idea that kind of relates to the conclusion in sort of the right way. That's usually not the right answer. Almost 99% of the time, that's the trap answer, especially for straight yeah, yeah. questions, right? Because it's not about like independently doing something to the conclusion. It's about improving the relationship that the conclusion already has to the existing premises and conclusions. That's a layer of abstraction above the beta task that I described earlier. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit harder, but you know, that's what the LR cares about most of the time anyway. Yeah. I also would walk around and listen to what people said and try to like pick out what was their support, what was their premise and what were they trying to convince me of? What was their conclusion? Found that like bringing this stuff into real life, I really took what my brother said, like studying this stuff and making it that it's the most important thing ever. I really took those words seriously and I would like pick apart people's words looking for premises and conclusions. <laughs> so that was definitely very helpful. Even, even I think even taking what people are saying and making explicit what their argument is. I think that's that's really helpful too because often it's people don't talk in a way that's like explicitly I'm going to make an argument here are my premises and here's my conclusion. Often it's it's implicit. They're making an argument. Maybe they don't even realize they're making an argument, but you can reformulate whatever it is that they just said into well, okay, I think you're trying to persuade me of X and your reasons are a, B, and C. So that means you have an argument. Yeah, that's really helpful too. You studied, like you said, for about five months. Were you in school when you were studying or were you? was this mostly during the summer? Yeah, so I started studying during the COVID world. So yeah, I was in school, but it was all online. So not that I was studying during my classes, but it was a lot easier. I find that online school was much, much easier. You didn't have to worry about like walking from one class to the other. So so that definitely helped. And I was also working a part-time job remotely as a paralegal for a law firm. So I am someone that thrives off of being busy. That's how I learn <laughs> the best. That's how I do the best. Yeah, I was going to say, you sounds sounds like a busy schedule, having part-time work and full-time school. And on top of that, you're studying for the LSAT. So does that just kind of prompt you to be super organized about your calendar, about your schedule? Yeah, everybody at like that tutors, they make fun of me, but I love PowerPoint and I will make a PowerPoint for each day of my life and organize <laughs> it hour by hour on what I'm going to do. And I think it's so fun because I get to like decorate a nice little PowerPoint and it gets me excited for my day. So that was like a very efficient way of dividing my time and just figuring out, okay, when is LSAT time? When is school time? When is work time? So that definitely helped me. Awesome. And do you recall, or maybe you could just consult your PowerPoints, approximately how many hours a week would you say you put towards LSAT? Yeah. So I'm thinking I would probably do like two hours a day. I'd say it came out, but a little more on weekends. I'd say it came out between like 15 hours a week, 20 hours a week, like somewhere in between there. Gotcha. So not a full-time thing, just like making sure I did it every day for a couple hours. What did you find was the hardest part of studying for a test if you had low points? 
Yeah, definitely. So one of the hardest parts was obviously just the mindset. So I get like very, very anxious when I have to take a test, as I'm sure almost everybody taking the LSAT has to go through. And I would always go to my mom for reassurance. I'd be like, do you think I studied enough? Do you think I studied enough? (laughs) Just like, I would like look for these reasons to stop studying. But it was when you try to like control situations like that, you lose control by asking my mom for reassurance, I was losing control over the thing I needed to control, which was my LSAT score. So just being confident in yourself and making sure that you allocate the right amount of time and that you dedicate that time. And when you're in that time, you actually are effectively studying. I think that's a major thing that I had as an issue was effectively studying. I didn't know what I was doing. I would like throw up a random schedule, do it. Like sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't. So definitely like mindset and coming up with a schedule to study was a big issue to me. And then also motivation, just getting through reading comp passages. I would never want to subject myself to that again, like doing millions of reading comp passages. I just think they're torture. Like I'll be completely honest. So that was another thing that was a struggle. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I find it a shame that you don't want to find out more about sea turtle migration patterns. (laughs) I know. I I know. I'm going to need that information like next year too. So I better get back to reading. (laughs) But seriously, one thing I keep telling students is there's just so much stuff that's outside of your control. It's very easy to get distracted and kind of depressed about all the things that you can't control. So it's important for your own mental health to reframe your prep in terms of what you are able to control as much as you can, you know, like the score is one of the things that people tend to people tend to be goal oriented when they study for the test of course right you're trying to get a certain score but see that's exactly one of those things that are that's hard to control because the if you ask like what are the causal priors to you achieving your goal score it's not just one thing that's a complex causal phenomenon there are tons of things that each contribute a little bit to whether you achieve your goal score or not and a lot of those things are just outside of your control but you know some of the things are within your control like for example setting a realistic schedule decorating that schedule with fun powerpoint stuff um <laughs> following through on that schedule by actually studying and if I think like a lot of these, if you kind of reframe your LSAT prep in terms of like what it is that I can't control and then judge yourself just based on whether or not you did the things that are within your control, that's a far healthier approach than, you know, just then what? Then like judging yourself against whether you are achieving, whether you've achieved your goal or not. I feel like that's kind of a recipe for unhappiness. Definitely. And the LSAT isn't a linear thing. And I always try to tell people that like you take one PT and you got a one. 67 but then then when you take the following days you get a 162 like right. that's completely normal having variations like that and i think that's something that gets people down a lot and then kind of discourages them from studying or encourages them to study in a way that's just not conducive to the lsat so that's something definitely for people to be a careful of just don't get too down by the numbers all the time yeah totally i mean especially like when initially when you see a bump it's very common for people to kind of plateau for a while and then they see a bump in their score and then they get all excited but then the next prep test they're down back to close to their plateau but you know the bump is to be interpreted as look it's possible right it's definitely mm-hmm. possible you know it's it's all this is why the test itself has a plus or minus three point score band because even the lsac recognizes that your particular score on that day is just an indication of what your potential score band range is expected to be if you were to retake the test. So there's variation built in. But having said that, like, did you experience, like, how, how was your ride from 160 up to 178 with that? You got off the bus at 170 for a hot second before... before. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I actually, like, looked back at my... I joined Seven Sage a little bit late, but I was looking back at how I was doing. It kind of started my scores, like, went up 
quickly, which is probably not like the best news to some people because a lot of people are slow. But I found that I jumped from like that 160 to 170 within like the first month, just by like learning how to read for structure and learning to look at arguments as relationships. But then from there, I'll be completely honest, I was stuck at 170 for like another two months. It was not until like one of the last months that I was able to get into like the mid 170s. And the way I finally got to like the mid 170s was taking practice tests and using those as a measure of where I was and where I needed to improve and what I needed to focus on. I see. And what did, so first, I guess the 10 point jump from 60, 160 to 170 doesn't sound super surprising given your background. And, you know, you've already identified the key weaknesses for yourself. So once you've patched up reading for structure for RC. And once you patched up the fact that you're doing argument analysis for LR, it makes sense that your scores improve. But from 170 to 178, you know, those last few points, you took the three section test, right? The first one I took was three sections in June, but then the August one had the little experimental in there. Experimental, yeah. right. Okay. So three score section test in, in August. Yes. So the raw score conversion from a 180 down to 170, I think this, what it, do you know what the, they didn't tell you what the scale was, right? No, I don't think so, no. Yeah, so, well, okay, back when it was four score sections, the curve, quote-unquote curve, meaning how many raw questions can you get wrong and still get a 170 would vary from, like, around 10. Harder curves would be, like, 10, 9. Easier curves would be, like, 11, 12. So perhaps the curve now is much more stringent because you only have 75 scored questions. So that means for your last 10 scaled point jump, you're looking at missing only, what, seven questions, six questions? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't even think about it that way. I think it was the way I did it was I... One of my big things towards the end was sufficient assumption questions. I don't know why it was just always those. And I remember reading people saying like, listen, these are the ones that if you want to be a high scorer, they need to be like freebies to you. So something that I really liked and I always watched you do it in the videos was kind of just simplifying it into letters and seeing where the gap was and filling in that gap. Like I said before, I'm a very big numbers person. So instead of letters, I always use numbers. It's a but proof. That, right? It's yeah, like a yeah, proof. Yeah, yeah. But that way definitely helped me. And there's a, there's a decent amount of sufficient assumption questions on the test. So that definitely helped me get like maybe one or two or three more questions right. Also, I find that using those numbers, again, with like the parallel reasoning or the parallel flaw, although it can be time consuming, that helped me get those answers right too. And then just for reading comp, I started writing small little notes and doing a lot less highlighting. So I came up with my own little thing. It was called Mavot. And I'd have to walk away from the passage knowing Mavot. So Mavot stood for main point, author's perspective, viewpoints, so like viewpoints of other people, organization, and tone. So I would always read a passage. And if I didn't know the Mavot, I was doing something wrong. <laughs> nice. So yeah. I think that definitely helped me get like those final couple questions. Those tend to be the very commonly tested questions. Definitely. Yeah. Another thing I just thought of this, I always made sure, and again, this is time consuming, but I was able to do it within the time. I would write down the line number that I got my answer from in reading comp because 
I would end with time left over because I hated reading comps so much I would rush through it. So a way I kind of made sure that I wasn't rushing through it and just picking an answer just to pick an answer was I would actually write the line number that I found the support in the passage on on my piece of paper. So I wasn't rushing myself through the test and I was actually thinking it through because I hate reading comps so much I would have rather just finished it and 25 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Now on the digital test, I mean, perhaps you can highlight that might be the analog because I think they got rid of line numbers now. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. So what I've been telling people is to like, if they like doing that, and they think it helps them write like top of paragraph one. So they would just write like T P one top of paragraph one. And that helped them just like actually know that they were finding an answer and not just circling something for the fun of it. But yeah, I was kind of upset that they took away the line numbers. <laughs> yeah. Now the questions that still refer to a specific part of the text, what it'll do is it'll automatically just kind of underline or highlight that part of the text for you in the passage. So yeah. You can just look over at it. Which Makes is me sad. Cool. I mean, yeah. I, I guess it kind of saves, saves time. But yeah, I obviously am trained in like looking at the line number. So it's, it was a little jarring not to have that anymore. Definitely, definitely. Also, like on the questions that ask you to refer back to the passage, I always did this since I took like the SAT, but I always read a few lines above and a few lines below. And I found that having the line numbers definitely helped me do that a little bit more quickly. But Because so often the right answer, I mean, usually these questions, these RC questions that give you specific text, they are questions about meaning or purpose in context, either meaning in context or purpose in context. So it has to be in context, meaning like if you delete everything above and everything below the quoted text, there will be absolutely no way for you to tell which answer is right, because they all possibly could be right. Like if it was a meaning of a phrase, right, then all five answers will be, you know, sort of close to at least potential interpretations of the phrase, but only one will be right because of the context or how it's used in context. So it's always whatever they're asking. It's either meaning in context or purpose in context, but whichever one it is, the important thing is in context. So you have to read a little above or a little below, or you just remember what the context was. Definitely. Yeah. I want to ask you about, this is a question I ask all our tutors, both from sort of first person perspective, also from a, as a tutor, what I tell my students perspective, like from a coaching perspective, the week leading up to the actual test demonstration is super nerve wracking. I don't know if you're prone to being nervous or anxious, but maybe you can tell us about how you handled it yourself and also like what advice you give to your students. Yeah, definitely. So I always, my teacher growing up, one of my favorite high school teachers, she always said like the five P's or something. It was like proper planning prevents piss poor performance. That was definitely more than five P's, but it was just about proper planning. If you want to perform well, you better plan. So one of the first things that I like to tell people is that they have to have like a mental health plan. So a mindfulness plan. I just think like knowing what you're going to do if you freeze is what you need so I always tell people to like go look through some mindfulness things so like one of them is the five senses drill I don't know if you've heard of it but it's what are five things you see what are five things that you can I don't I forget what the next one is five things you see four things you feel three things you hear two things you smell and one thing you taste and basically the whole goal of that is just to kind of get your mind at ease and put your head in the game. I always told people to do that before they took the test and also have like a smaller modified way of doing it in case they freak out during the test. So I'd be like, okay, if you freak out during the test, 
Come up with a five second plan that helps you. Maybe just notice one thing you feel in the room. Notice that for like two seconds, then get back into it. It's like a little mental restart. So just that's one of the biggest things I always tell people is to have a plan in case you freak out. Nice. As a way to pull you out from that bad mental state to recenter yourself. Yeah, definitely. So the week before the test, I kind of always tell people the same thing. So for me, I took my last practice test a week out from taking the LSAT. I find that practice tests, as they do, there's obviously a score band, your score fluctuates, and you don't want to get sad and stressed and anxious <laughs> right before your exam. So I would kind of limit myself to a week out taking an LSAT. I take it the following day, I would do the blind review of that LSAT, see if I could learn anything from it. And then I would just do a section a day. So I would do like an LR section, the next day I do an LG section, the next day I do an RC section. And then I think that brings me to like two days out. So I would see whatever section I was weakest at, do one more of those the day before, just kind of chill out, maybe do a game for fun. And then on the day of your ELSA, I always recommend like going outside, breathing in some fresh air, relaxing, and then doing five LR questions that you know you can do that you've done well before. And also a game that you've done before. I I think the final week is all about confidence. You just need to hype yourself up. I agree. It's not much to do with how much more you can improve in grammar, parsing, or logical analysis or anything like that. It's just about you're already cruising. It's just about confidence. Definitely. You're not going to learn much within a week, I don't think. Yeah, it's nothing you can cram for. Yeah, no. Awesome. Do you have trouble falling asleep? Do you have any advice for people who feel like they're too nervous to sleep the night before? Yeah, no, I definitely get that. My big thing is, it might sound stupid, but my big thing is always, does being nervous help me? It doesn't. <laughs> so I let it go. And I feel like that comes, obviously I'm young, but that definitely comes with like time and like getting older and realizing things that you're nervous about don't really matter. Another thing I always tell myself is, I think everybody gets this, like I call it the Sunday scaries, but we always get it at like the night before something big. Like you have all these intrusive thoughts coming into your head. Like what if this happens during your exam? What if this happens during your exam? But I always say to myself, feelings lie, thoughts lie. We come up with these intrusive thoughts all the time. Everything in life gives us intrusive thoughts, but it's all a lie. It's just our brain lying to us. You kind of just have to let it go. And then as for sleeping, you have to remind yourself that you need to do what's best for you in order to excel on this test. And sleeping is the thing that's going to help you excel. It's not don't be laying in bed saying, oh, maybe I should just go do another reading comp passage. Getting enough sleep and being in the right mindset is just as important. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Practice good sleep hygiene as early as you possibly can. I think the night before is going to be kind of tough if you haven't already been practicing good sleep hygiene. What does that mean? Like regular bedtime? not looking at bright screens an hour or two before. If you're sensitive to caffeine, make sure you drink your last cup of coffee at whatever time works for you. For me personally, it's around noon. I don't drink coffee anymore after because I find it just interferes with my sleep. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know people who can have a espresso at dinner and still just, you know, sleep fine. But that's yeah, not my mom's the same way. That lady's like drinking coffee like as she walks <laughs> into bed. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, sleep is super, super important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think people get afraid to sleep because they think that they can somehow do more. But sleeping is just as important. I also find that this is so silly, but I have like my own little sleep game. I play Tetris in my head when I close my eyes and try to fall asleep. Just trying <laughs> to get your mind off of something different than your intrusive thoughts is wonderful. 
That sounds like your version of sleep hygiene. Do something that induces sleep, right? Like I read in bed and I read nonfiction, and that's a very mild way of just you know slowly inducing sleep. It doesn't usually it doesn't take more than thirty five to like forty five minutes, and then I'm out. It's very helpful. Definitely, yeah. I will say too, and again, I don't know who did this research, but I I remember learning from psychology class, studying in bed for the LSAT is actually never a good idea because you associate your bed with stress. Right. And then you get a worse night's sleep. So just creating those good habits of not studying in bed, having a special spot that you study for the LSAT, even if you can somehow study outside of your room, that's the best thing you could possibly do because then you're associating your room with terrible reading comp passages, scary games, and (laughs) annoying arguments. And that's not what you want for a good night's sleep. (laughs) Yeah. Sounds like you're trying to induce nightmares. Yeah, literally. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about your June 21 score of 170 and then your August 21 score of 178. So when you were heading into June, is this what you were kind of expecting to get? Were you prep testing around the 170? No. So I was actually testing decently higher, like probably like a 175. However, LSAC was very good about this, but my proctor didn't mute herself during my exam. Oh, no. And I had no idea that that was abnormal because I had never taken an LSAT before. So side note, before you take your LSAT, learn how to be a very good advocate for yourself and to speak up if something's not right. I think I did this in August and I always tell people this, have an honest conversation with your proctor before you take the exam. Like, hey, if you need to pause my time, like if you need to say something to me, please pause my time and then say it. Or say something along the lines of, hey, as soon as we start, can you please make sure your microphone's muted? Just because that is extremely extremely distracting. She was actually speaking a language that I didn't know and she didn't seem very happy. So I thought I was getting yelled at. She thought I spoke a different language. So that was kind of scary. And it was during the game section, which I rely on for that perfect score. I rely on the games to get me that score. That happened and that kind of just screwed up my whole test. So LSAT can actually offer you, and again, I don't know what the criteria or the guidelines are now, but they can actually offer you like a retest a couple weeks later, or they can just discount your next LSAT. So I just went with taking a different LSAT in a different month. So that's kind of what happened during that June 2021 test. I definitely should have scored a little bit higher, but I don't want to make excuses, but I think being yelled at in a different language kind of screwed me up a little bit (laughs) and you can't see the people too you can't see if they're actually talking to you yeah but did the LSAT give you any options to I don't know to scrub that score or was it just well it is what it is yeah yeah so I think they felt very bad to be honest which was nice So they gave me so many options. I could have gotten rid of the score, taken the test the next week or something. I could have kept the score, then got a discount for a new test, which is what I did. Just because I felt like the rest of the exam went really well. It was just that 15 minutes of the game section. And when I called LSAC to talk to them about it, they actually said, we consider anything that takes 30 seconds out of your time as significant, which makes sense. So I actually had one client recently, he English isn't his first language and his proctor was like highlighting stuff during his reading comp passage. And we came up with our own little method. He would like underline the words that he didn't know in English and try to replace them with something else, like a little filler word, which is what I have a lot of people do during those tough science passages. Instead of saying osmosis, call it process A or something. So that was his system and it worked for him. And they were highlighting and underlining everything on accident. So he 
he got a retest just because he said it took away at least two minutes of my time. And they understood that. So be a good advocate for yourself is what I would tell people during the exam. How does that even happen? The proctors just accidentally? Yeah, see, I don't know because I know Raphael, the same thing happened to him. They were like highlighting his stuff. Yeah, that's, well, maybe after 10 more years of running this test, they'll have figured out all the bugs. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's because they can control your screen and maybe they forget to turn it off and they go to play on their screen and then it like accidentally highlights your stuff. Honestly, I'm not sure, but it happens like way too often. That's super disruptive. Yeah, I feel so bad for the people it happens to because of course, like getting a retest is really nice, but you still have to go through those jitters all over again. Of course, but it seems like it worked out. Was the second, the August testing? Yeah, that was the 178. Then in terms of the administration of it, it was smooth. Yeah. And I said something beforehand. I was like, listen, like I'm literally taking this test again because my proctor messed up in the nicest way possible. So if you need to say something to me, please pause the time and then proceed to say it. And please make sure your microphone is muted and please do not start the clock until your microphone is muted. And I had no issues. So <laughs> it worked. Very nice. And as far as you know, the proctor is proctoring just you, or can you infer if she's I feel like she it's is just you. Okay. Because I've had people tell me that the proctors move your paper closer to like the screen and stuff. And I feel like if you're watching multiple people, you like I don't know. Right. I feel you're like on the you bandwidth and all these it. things. Right. Yeah. Well, Brittany, why don't we transition a bit and look at a actual LR question and talk about it? Yeah, sure. So we're looking at the June 2007 prep test. This is section two, question 14. So the June 2007 prep test is the one that the LSAC freely releases. So I'll read the stimulus first. I'll read the stimulus. I'll read the question stem. Then we'll talk about it. And then we'll dive into some of the answers. We, we might not cover all the answers. So the, I guess, question stem first, it says, which one of the following of true most seriously weakens the argument? So this is a weakening question, what we categorize as a weakening question. So the task is, in the stimulus, you'll be presented with premises, either singular premise or plural premises, followed by a conclusion. And there's going to be some support relationship between the two. And our job is to find an answer choice that messes up, that weakens that support structure, that support relationship. The stimulus tells us that you have a cup of raw milk, and then if you heat it in a microwave to about 50 degrees Celsius, that cup of raw milk is going to contain half its initial concentration of a particular enzyme called the lysozyme. And then it says, if, however, the milk reaches that temperature, meaning 50 degrees Celsius, through exposure to a conventional heat source of 50 degrees Celsius, it will contain nearly all of its initial concentration of that enzyme. And then it's about to tell us the conclusion. But before we even get to the conclusion, let's just make sure we understand the facts here. What are the premises? What's And, and what, Brit, do you anticipate might be already kind of challenging in this stimulus? Yeah, something I like to do is I always like to go through the stimulus in very casual, easy words. So basically what I got from this and could see people having a hard time taking is basically... If you put milk to 50 degrees Celsius in a microwave, half of the enzyme is destroyed. But if you just put it in 50 degrees in a conventional way, all the enzymes are there. So our question is basically, why do the enzymes disappear in the microwave, but the enzymes stay when they're with a conventional heat source? Right. So the conventional heat source here, 
I mean, they don't say, so I suppose it doesn't really matter too much. But it is important that you realize that they're contrasting microwave with conventional heat source. So maybe over a stove, maybe over a fire, maybe that's what they mean by conventional heat source. They're just two different ways of heating up milk to 50 degrees Celsius. And the fact that they tell you what that enzyme is, lysozyme, also kind of doesn't matter. You know, so what if they said it wasn't lysozyme? So what if they said it was mysozyme or dysozyme or whatever it is? <laughs> yeah, literally. Like the, yep. the, I, th- I think these are just kind of little bits of distraction. So a lot of your training kind of kicks in. If you've done this a lot, you're able to focus on what's actually important here. What's the signal here? What's noise? So the signal is that you got the phenomenon being described as two different ways of heating up milk to 50 degrees Celsius, one through a microwave, one, let's just imagine, on your stove. Yet the results are different. For the microwave, half the enzyme is gone. For the stove heated, that's not the case. So the setup here is very familiar to a different kind of question called the resolve, reconcile, explain question. Typically, in that kind of question, that would just be the end of the stimulus. And then it's like, this is puzzling, isn't it? It's kind of weird, isn't it? What is the resolution? Can you come up with a hypothesis that explains this puzzling phenomenon? So in weakening and strengthening questions, some subset of those questions, what they do is they give you the same setup from RRE stimuli. And then instead of asking you to find a hypothesis in the answers, they take that hypothesis, they stick it into the stimulus as well as a conclusion. And then they ask you to do something in addition. So here we see the author attempting to explain this discrepancy. The author says, therefore, I know what's happening. Here's my hypothesis to explain. I know what's happening. So what's destroying the enzyme is not just the heat, because after all, I just told you they both heat up to 50 degrees, right? So it's not the heat that's destroying the enzyme. It's the microwaves themselves. It's the microwaves that generate the heat. That's what's destroying the enzyme. So on the face of it, it seems like a decent hypothesis. Yeah, it seems decent. But I always tell myself with weakening questions, the person saying the stimulus is my arch nemesis and that (laughs) there's something wrong with what they're saying. So if you're ever doing a weakening question, I don't know, is it an ex-boyfriend, an ex-girlfriend, a teacher you didn't like? I always (laughs) pretend it's someone not so swell in your life saying it because I think it's easier to criticize people and things that we don't like. So I think by looking at it with that like critical lens of someone that you don't love, it's actually easier to see an issue or a way to find an issue. Okay. So how would you respond then if this was your ex-boyfriend who like left <laughs> yeah, totally yeah. devastated? <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing I would say is he, her, whoever is arguing that the enzyme is not being destroyed by heat, but by microwaves. So I'm thinking, is there something else within the microwave that is doing this thing? Is it not like exactly the microwave itself? that's causing it. Or maybe we could find something that says that there's no way that microwaves could cause the damage. Or maybe there's something that says that heat is actually the cause. So I kind of have three things going in my head. One, heat is actually the cause. Two, there's no way that microwaves can cause damage because they're just so perfect and they would never do that to an enzyme. Or three, there's something else kind of like that dangling variable, dangling idea about the microwave that could do it, but it's not not exactly the microwave itself. That's kind of what I would be thinking. I see. Yeah. I think with this kind of question, with this kind of weakening question, where the content is, here's a particular phenomenon, here's a hypothesis that explains the phenomenon. This is the kind of weakening question that utilizes phenomenon, hypothesis, logic, or scientific reasoning. It is just hard to, unless you already know what's happening. Right, unless you happen to be a subject matter expert here. It's just hard to know what's actually happening because the world is stranger than you've imagined, especially because I don't spend a lot of time imagining the world of microwaves and heat and whatever this enzyme is. I think it's helpful then 
in recognition of this, to couch your anticipations in as broad terms as possible, kind of like what you did, where you're like, well, maybe maybe heat, maybe there is something about heat. I don't know what, based on the information here, it seems like it's not heat. I mean, both are 50 degrees, so I don't know how it's heat. But then I also don't know too much about microwaves and at the molecular level how this works. I don't know too much about conventional sources. I don't know how much, right? So just having that, I guess, sense of humility about your knowledge of the empirical world is helpful. And then, of course, similar for microwaves as well for you to go into the answer choices. But in terms of weakening, if you recognize the structure here is the premises are presented as a phenomenon and the conclusion is a hypothesis purporting to explain the phenomenon, what do you tend to look for structurally in the answers in a weakening question? Yeah, so what I would tend to look for is kind of something that wasn't proven by the premises. Maybe they bring something up that wasn't given to me in the premises. Just something kind of dangling is what I would look for. Also, just that there's something that is an outside thing that could have caused it. So that's probably one of the major things is when I have a phenomenon and then a conclusion, I will look for something outside that could have caused it or show that there's no correlation between something that what they're saying is nonsense altogether. So that's normally what I would look for. Yeah, yeah, I think that's good. I think here, the recurring patterns in the wrong answers that where, where the stimulus takes this form is either, you know, we're in weakening. So either you just offer up some alternative hypothesis that explains the thing. Here, it seems like that's probably not going to be it because you have the hypothesis that simultaneously claims it is not the heat and it is the microwave. Another recurring possibility is where you just offer up some factual information that's inconsistent with the preferred hypothesis. Some factual information that were that preferred hypothesis to be true, you wouldn't expect to find this fact out there in the world. If you can come up with something like that, that also weakens. Other recurring possibilities are in terms of causal mechanisms, right? If here they're talking about microwaves being the causal prior, that's the phenomenon that is first chronologically. And then microwaves are responsible causes, the heating, which then results in the destruction of enzymes. That causal story is, you can zoom in on that causal story. It can be like, wait, specifically how does microwave interact with the milk particles, that blah, blah, blah. So that's in logical reasoning. I think of that as, you Know, seeking out a causal mechanism, a more detailed causal story. So that often is where the right answer resides as well. So I think with all that in mind, maybe we can look at some of the wrong answers. I don't want to look at all of them, but maybe let's look at answer choice C, which is a super popular wrong answer. It says, a liquid exposed to a conventional heat source of exactly 50 degrees Celsius will reach that temperature more slowly than it would if it were exposed to a conventional heat source hotter than 50 degrees Celsius. Yeah, I could see why people pick that for sure. What do you think is attractive about this? What do you think people can do to not fall into the trap? Basically, I guess what it's saying to you is warmer heat raises temperatures more quickly, right? <laughs> I think that's what it's saying yeah, to us, no, right? That's, that's totally and I, right. And I feel like that's a fact that I knew in third grade science. So I just feel like that this is not really explaining anything with the enzyme situation. It's not explaining, oh, when it gets hotter faster, the enzyme goes out faster. It's nothing to do with the actual issue at hand. So I think what's appealing is it's kind of explaining something a little bit different with the heating arrangements, how fast they heat up, but it doesn't explain anything to do with the enzyme. It's not heading at the issue at all. Absolutely. And I think what we just heard from you, Britt, is how much easier the test becomes if you don't misread the wrong answers. 
or just any of the answers. The way you read it, you're just like, okay, C is basically telling me that if I heat something at a hotter temperature, the heat increases faster than if I heat something at, at, at a lower temperature. Like, duh, right? See, I, I feel like if everybody read it this way, they would just immediately cross out C. I mean, if you look at the grammar of C, what it's saying, you see, a th- in fact, you see two than, T-H-A-N, right, than. So you got to understand, okay, this is comparative. I think people get that. They definitely see that as comparative. I think maybe what people might misread C as, as a, you might misread it as comparing what to what, right? You might misread it as comparing how quickly the liquid increases in temperature when you heat it over a conventional heat source versus how quickly a liquid increases in temperature when you heat it in a microwave. No, that's definitely what happens is they read it too quickly. And I think that's why you have to like slow down and put it into words that are simplified, which is what I did to realize that there's a major issue with that question or with that answer to it. Yeah, for sure. If you read it that way, I think you might be drawn to C because you might you might be like, well, the argument really didn't contemplate the speed with which that cup of milk reaches 50 degrees. So then C might be offering an alternative hypothesis. Wait a second, maybe it's not the microwaves. Maybe it is the heat because what the heat is doing is if maybe the rate of heat increase has an impact on the destruction of the enzyme. So if the microwave is able to raise the milk up to 50 degrees faster than cooking it over a stovetop, maybe that's actually what causes the destruction. So that would fit the mold of us anticipating an alternative hypothesis to explain the same phenomenon. So test writers are really good at, even if none of this was explicit, what I just said about, oh, the framework of phenomenon hypothesis alternative hypothesis that weakens an existing hypothesis, even if none of that framework was explicitly spelled out in your mind, I think deep down intuitively, that's what you're doing anyway. That's kind of what we're, we're like natural scientists in a way. So I get the strong feeling that the test writers put that put this answer in here to bait us to first misread. And then if we misread, then it actually fits the mold of offering an alternative hypothesis. Yeah, definitely. I agree. So it's tough. I mean, the self, the cure, the prevention for all of this comes down to basics, right? Fundamentals, grammar parsing, just reading comprehension, just, you know, making sure you understand what you're reading and slowing down to get that, to extract the meaning out, the actual meaning out. Let's look at a different answer. Let's look at answer choice E, which says, yeah, E is an elephant. That says heating any liquid by microwave creates small zones within it that are much hotter than the overall temperature that the liquid will ultimately reach. Yeah, I like that answer choice. <laughs> <laughs> Why? On first blush, I don't know. It doesn't talk about enzymes, right? It doesn't talk about, I don't know, it doesn't talk about microwave in comparison to traditional e-sources. But why, why do you like it? Yeah. So for me, like what I was talking about kind of in the beginning, maybe there's something about microwaves, some like outside thing that I don't know that kind of explains it. So that's kind of what E did for me. So it shows the difference between heating in a conventional heating source, whatever that might be, stove or I don't know many conventional heat sources, I guess. But it shows that there's a difference between the conventional heat source heating and the microwave heating. And it kind of just shows that microwave heats the milk in a way, to a warmer temperature than a conventional heat source. And the reason why is because there's these little holes that will make the overall temperature that it reaches much higher in the microwave. Yeah, so the overall temperature that the liquid will ultimately reach references the 50 degrees Celsius. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So E is telling us that even though it's true that the cup of milk heated in a microwave ultimately reaches 50 degrees Celsius, in the process of heating, if you're able to measure different parts of the milk, there are little pockets within it, small zones within it. That's way hotter than 50 degrees. That's just how the microwave works. So if that's true, you just have to make one more connection to what's happening to realize that E 
actually does offer an alternative hypothesis for, for what's going on. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, like if this is true, if the milk has pockets within it that is far higher than 50 degrees Celsius, then wait a second. Now, how do you know it's not the heat, but the microwaves? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that one of the issues with this question, I mean, issues meaning for like people taking the test like us or thinking about the test like us, is that it doesn't mention the enzyme within it which might make somebody cross it out and go out of scope. But what I always do is I kind of read the answer choice and say, what does this do to screw up the person's argument? Because it because it's a weakening question. And exactly as you said, it does screw up their argument. Thus, it is a very good answer. So one of the things is just be very careful that you don't eliminate things. And I'm, obviously, I'm not speaking to you, JY. I'm speaking to everybody else. But be careful you don't eliminate things too quickly. I actually have people that I teach a lot record themselves taking an exam and we will watch them eliminate the first thing because they deemed it out of scope but it did something and it did the right thing for what the question stem was asking totally totally I, I think i think it's very helpful to record yourself and just watch how you perform under stress and try to see if watching what you're doing prompts your memory right of like what was i thinking and for a question like this it's just super important that you have the right foundational framework for understanding the kind of logic that this argument is trading. Originally, the argument seemed compelling because it seemed like the author ran something like a controlled experiment. You have this one situation here. You have this other situation here. It seems like the only thing that's different is this heat source. One was microwave, the other was the oven or whatever, the stovetop, whatever the conventional thing was. If it seemed like that, then it, it seems natural and supported to draw the conclusion that what caused the difference in the measurable outcome of the enzyme? What caused it? Well, it's the only difference I can see between my two experimental setups. One was microwave, the other was heat source. See, that's the logic of the argument. You know, it's pretending to be an experiment. Obviously, it's not an experiment. You didn't run all these controls. And E points out that weakness. He's like, you know why it's not an experiment? Because microwaves and stovetops don't work the same way. Yes, the liquid ultimately reached 50 degrees, but how did it get to 50 degrees? In a microwave, certain parts are really cold, certain parts are really hot, and they kind of average out to 50 degrees. So now all of a sudden it's like, oh, well then that's another difference that I didn't control for. So perhaps that's the difference that accounts for the destruction of the enzymes. With answer choice E being true, this is so classic of weakening. With answer choice E being true, it's not enough for you to say, oh, well, now the conclusion is false. I know for sure it's not the microwaves, but rather it's the heat that destroyed the enzyme. You can't say that. You, you just, all you can say is that what your original argument isn't that strong anymore supporting that conclusion. I don't know. It could still be the microwave. You just need to run a different experiment. This time, actually control for the heating. Make sure that you don't have this crazy variation in the heat. And then see what happens. And then you'll know if it's microwaves or if it's the heat. Yeah, definitely. That makes sense. Yeah, I feel like it's common that it might not be, it might not damage the argument to no end, but it does a little something, something. Yep, definitely. And... <laughs> I mean, that's that's one of the recurring flaws, you know, that they test. Like a lot of flaw questions are, they do that. They give you someone else's argument and then the author calls out an assumption that other people made. They give you other people's argument, author calls out an assumption, and then the author himself or herself goes on to commit illogical flaws. I see now I've shown that you're conclusion is false. Like, whoa, whoa, hold on a second. You haven't, actually. You've just damaged an argument. That doesn't mean you've proven the conclusion, you know, the conclusion is false. But yeah, it's all kind of related. Maybe, maybe we just stop here with these two answers. I have kept you here long enough. Britt scored a 178 on her August 2021 LSAT. She's a 7th age tutor and a future law student. You can reach out to her on our discussion forum at 7thstage.com slash discussion. Britt, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Of course, I had fun. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. 
If you thought our discussion of the logical reasoning question was helpful, you'll find even more on 7sage.com. We have LR explanation videos for every prep test released in the last 25 years. That's a library of over 3,600 videos, and that's just for LR alone. We have even more for logic games and reading comprehension. So if you're prepping for the LSAT, or if you're applying to law school, come visit us at 7sage.com. We can help. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself, and see you next time.